from your perspective and the perspective of your readers, what has changed particularly over the last 18 months or so? And one of the things that we've really seen happen across society is that the embrace of all things digital in nature. And perhaps now we're starting to see the consequence of some of that as as diverse as that is from using less cash, using more credit cards. What does that mean for people who don't have bank accounts and who can't get access to, to credit cards? How are they coping? Our readers tend to be, politely put, a bit more mature, so from late 40s upwards. And physical cash is extremely important to them. So we've realised when we've done campaigns about people's ability to access cash through post offices have been put into question. Barclays, for example, was think was looking at that. That that's provoked a really, really big reaction on the part of readers. So I think for older age groups, if our readers are anything to go by at all, then access to cash use of cash, acceptability of cash as a means of payment is extremely important. One other source of huge fascination for our readership, admittedly a slightly different segment, is Bitcoin and crypto. So we have a a distinct segment of the readership who are fascinated by that. Now, I think personally, Bitcoin kind of fails most of the most basic kind of economics 101 currency tests. But it speaks to a bit of a distrust of of conventional money and, you know, perhaps a marginal loss of confidence in in central banks. And I I do feel when you're deep into unorthodox policy measures, you know, we've got nearly a trillion pounds worth of of QE and bond buying that you can sort of see where, where that's coming from, really. I'm fascinated by the idea of a central bank digital currency. Um, So I think that has the potential to really call into question the the banking system as we know it, the traditional banking system as we know it. And I think that combined with just, you know, the rise of fintech, I mean, you've seen this this, this float of of wise is is, is the latest one. That's all, you know, that, that's all kind of changing the world order. And I think that's really accelerating in, in the pandemic. Technology and, and quicker adoption of, of technology. And one really big area that, that the readers are um, engaged with is the nature of work. Having got beyond working from home as a, as a safety issue, as a, as a public health issue, is this something that we could or should embrace for productivity reasons, for lifestyle reasons, for, you know, is this something that we should continue with? I mean, finally, on, on, on the tech point, I've been thinking quite a lot about the nature of meritocracy, which is, as you know, a, a huge area of, of, of debate at a time when the use of tech is is just burgeoning and, and is getting faster. So on the one hand, I, I think we have a situation where the pandemic has made people probably less tolerant of inequalities and more, more exercised by inequality in society. But at the same time, you've got an acceleration of tech and a situation where if we do have a meritocracy, 
it will be people, it will be the most technologically knowledgeable and adept who are at the top of that. How do we as a broader society balance that and hold people accountable? So I think there are a whole new set of questions. You know, when, when, I, when I was younger, meritocracy was all about grammar schools or not grammar schools and things like that. And I think it's got a whole lot more complicated and is about to get more complicated still. Goodness, there's a lot there. Ruth. There's a lot there. <laughs> picking, picking some of that apart. I, I agree completely. And I, I remain concerned about that evolution of cash. And I know it's important to your readers and I know it's important to an older generation. But perhaps one of the things we're starting to see in terms of consequence of the pandemic is obviously online shopping and what you're talking about in relation to fintech is changing the nature of high streets very significantly. Mm. And it's mm. changing the nature of community mm. very significantly. You can get payments to work in a fintech way. You can get access to cash and transfers to work. But there's no real evidence so far that lending... The new fintech entrants are not particularly keen to get into lending because that requires lots of capital and, and lots of regulation that would, even if they wanted to take that down, would reduce their nimbleness in, in, in other directions. Where would the fintechs be left with the advent of a central bank digital currency, because if you can just, you know, have stuff at the Bank of England, hold stuff at the Bank of England and transfer money abroad at a much lower cost through the old lady of Threadneedle Street, then where does that leave your, your fintech um, operators? You know, you raise a, some really important issues around high streets. The short answer to your question, are we thinking about it enough, is no, we're not. And I think Again, like a lot of things, the pandemic really has accelerated existing trends. So we focused quite heavily on things like, you know, the, the anomalies within the business rate system, which is, is one kind of piece of this complicated jigsaw puzzle. But, you know, again, if, if you're it, it depends really. And I think we don't know the answer to this, how much is society, how much is work, how much are our lives going to change permanently as a result of, of COVID? Because if people are not commuting into town centres and city centres to work in the same numbers, then I think that is really a very profound change. I'm not sure I have answers. I think a benign scenario would be, in my mind, if there's a reordering, if landlords and some of these rent agreements that have been part of the problem I think are unpicked and make it economic again for small independent shops to make a return to local high streets then I think that could actually be quite positive so you know you can imagine a future where every shop isn't a phone shop and where or a charity clothing or, or a charity shop or whatever, or a pop-up. You can imagine a future where in, independence come back to life, where high streets become more distinctive, more local again, where you've got a mix of retail, housing and leisure. You know, one can imagine that. I mean, you can also imagine a tumbleweed scenario, can't you, with fewer people coming in. I tend to think maybe smaller local town centres, there is a potential to benefit if people are commuting less far. We have, from a financial services perspective, we've been thinking about how you go about changing the gender balance within financial services, for example. And it, it, it's, it's quite a complex problem because you can attract 
women into the industry, then it's a question of how you keep them in the industry. But in order to attract them in in the first place, you have to start with education a lot earlier on than we're currently doing. So that's not talking necessarily just to university students. We've now started to think about talking to students that are doing GCSEs before they make A-level choices, because we need to try and encourage women and minorities to do STEM and maths of, of various different natures. Now, the pandemic has been good for the profile of science, which is, which is great, but there aren't enough women and there aren't enough people from minority backgrounds going into science, technology, engineering mm. in general. You know, that's a brilliant point. And I've done quite a bit of work on women in engineering and why aren't there more female engineers? And, and there's a huge skill shortage in engineering as well. So we do as a country actually need all the engineers of whatever gender or, or you know, type that we can possibly find if we're going to get to build back better. We're going to need women to help us to do it. A lot of it's about engaging girls really young. I met some people from Leonardo Helicopters recently and they told me this lovely story that a girl had um, seen one of their posters and phoned up and said, I'm really interested in, in a job with you. Can I come and look around your site and see what you're doing? And they said, yes. And when she arrived, she was eight. You know, she had said she was eight. So they, they took her around and, and, you know, showed her everything, like, you know, whatever they've got. And she was absolutely fascinated. And when I heard that story, I thought, well, you know, I can remember actually being eight and playing with chemistry sets and reading about Marie Curie and trying to blow up my parents' kitchen and, and doing experiments and dissecting caterpillars and all kinds of like vile things. And then somehow that what's essentially scientific curiosity was somehow vanished, you know, and, and went somewhere. It must be still buried in a lot of us women, I think, because, you know, as you say, with the pandemic, you start getting, you know, we've all become interested in, in, in science again. And something happens at schools, doesn't it? And whether it's some subliminal thing still saying that it's a bit unfeminine to be doing science or maths, maybe there's a perception around engineering that it's, you know, it's all spanners and oil and you're going to get dirty. And of course, it's not that. Perhaps there's an element with parents that I think we don't see engineering as a high status job the way they do elsewhere. If I had been of a more scientific bent, I would love to have been an engineer. And I think it's such a fantastic career for a woman because it's often it's project based. So, you know, if you want to have a family, you want to take off time to, to have kids. You do a project, you can take some time, you can go in on another project, you come back, and go, which is kind of not the case with a lot of other careers where you have to step off a ladder and then, you know, try and get back on. You can have as much faith in government as, as you can manage, but it does come down probably to individuals doing things more locally. About half our staff are under 40, and I would say maybe 25% of that half were probably under 30. They have struggled a bit more in the last 18 months than the slightly older, more senior staff members because it's been more difficult to connect them to the culture of the firm via Zoom, to recruit people who've never met face-to-face. -face. And most of those 
people who've joined us are very fortunate they're working in London, but they are at the very start of their career. So they don't have a nice outside garden. They don't have a study that they can go to. They, they probably have been spending 20 to 22 hours a day in their bedrooms. And you'd have to conclude that that's a pretty miserable existence. Absolutely right. I think the pandemic's been very hard on the young. And I also think if the model that seems to be promulgated of, well, let's all work from home, predicated on we've all got like a, a lovely big house in Norfolk type of ideal, which is stereotype. I think that discriminates against the young, but I think it also it discriminates against, you know, gay people, against, against single people, against anybody who doesn't have that cookie cutter married with 2.4 children existence and doesn't actually want to, or isn't in a position that they're spending all their time with their family and being happy with that, you know, it discriminates against widows or whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's just yeah. kind of not, I, I, I really have a problem with the way this is presented as somehow an ideal um, template for everybody. I would agree. And, and, and we're starting to see that debate sort of open up about coming back into the office and working from the office. And what, we're, what I'm trying to make sure we, we don't do is throw out some of the good things that have happened over the last 18 mm. months in an effort to get back to normal. And flexibility has been one of the good outcomes of the last 18 months. The people who are making the decisions about policy in the organisation are well established in their careers with reasonable assets, and that makes it a very different decision to the 22 hours in your bedroom, which is miserable. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of making sure that the people who are making the decisions are open to the fact that their experience is not the only way to look at this problem. Clear communications is very much harder than people think anyway, and the potential for misunderstandings and miscommunications is harder when you're not face to face and it's that bit more effort isn't it to if you've been on a zoom to phone and check did you understand that the same than it would be to just put your head around someone's door and I think all of these micro frictions can actually just add up and become become a bit of a snowball for people so I agree with you it would be a shame if we were to lose some of the freeing effects that we've seen in the pandemic and some of the opportunities to kind of hire people who might otherwise have been excluded. So people with caring responsibilities who might find it hard to do a nine to five or people who can't afford to live in central London near an office but could commute in three days a week. So I think all, all of those, if we can somehow capture the benefits without taking it all too far... Although I can see that productivity could be improved by not having the commute and, and all of these things, I do also think actually over time people would drift. I think we all use social capital that we've built up with teams over a long time. And I think if you're sitting at home separately and you're a bit atomized, and then I think perhaps you do start working a bit less and you know other things looking out the window and it, it starts to distract you a bit more I think it just gets harder to keep that glue I mean in the same way as a friend you only ever interact with on Facebook is not as good a friend as somebody that you go out to the pub with every week it's a completely different thing 